The Chris Sheeran Show, only on YesNetwork.com. Did you miss us? We're back. It's The Chris Sheeran Show, hashtag CSS, here on YesNetwork.com and iTunes. Chris Sheeran, Doug Williams. Hello, Doug. Thank you, Chris. Hello. Uh, how you doing? It's the first time we've done this since I was in the great Salt Lake City uh, with the Nets and then to Omaha and then to Milwaukee and back to Brooklyn. And here I am once again. So a little busy schedule, but I'm back and it's nice to be doing this once again. And um, Doug, I want to dive right into spring training baseball. I'm sick of the cold weather. Uh, uh, you know, basketball's heating up in Brooklyn right now. We'll talk about the Nets a little bit. Uh, basketball, not so much in Manhattan, but in Brooklyn. Uh, the Knicks are just a hot mess. As the kids like to say these days, we'll touch on them. We'll touch on the Nets. But I really want to start talking about baseball. I'm excited about the season starting, and I'm excited about this Yankee team. Uh, and I'm excited about one pitcher in particular, and that's Ivan Nova. I think this guy, Doug, he is the linchpin of this rotation. I think the Yankees go as Nova goes. Now, you might say, well, wait, Chris, what about CC Sabathia? What if his velocity isn't there? And we only saw it at 89 in his first outing, but it's his first outing in spring training. And I think CC Sabathia knows he, he, he's in the best shape of his life. Uh, and even Andy Pettit said yesterday, if the velocity isn't there, CC knows how to pitch. But it's going to be interesting to see how a power pitcher, as CC's relied on that his entire career, and we saw his struggles last year with an ERA north of four and a half, uh, especially you know in the first half of the season, which really put him into those numbers. He, he wasn't himself, and I think you know the fastball maybe peaked at 92 last year, and now we see 89 on the gun. So it's going to be interesting to see if he's flipped the switch, Doug, and uh, you know he's able to become a pitcher and not a thrower. Yeah. Uh- Interesting. I was thinking, you know, if somehow the CC had figured out how to, like, bribe the guy with the radar gun just to turn up the miles <laughs> per hour a few notches, like, and he came out and been throwing 94, 95, we'd all be, you know, ooing and eyeing, and, and this wouldn't be a story. But, you know, as a former pitcher, Chris, the, the weakest your arm ever is and the most pain you're ever in in terms of building up muscle in your right or left arm is in the spring. I remember right. going down to Florida for spring training in high school. There would be games where I'd have, you know, a two-inning bullpen or I'd have, you know, I'd be pitching against a team for 35 pitches or two innings, whatever comes first, like these guys are mm-hmm. doing now. And you'd, you'd get on the mound, you'd be like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. <laughs> you feel like that dead arm, your whole arm hurts. So CC has never been a hard thrower in spring training. There's no reason to be. Just no. nice and easy. Get your reps in. That's kind of the way it works. And it was so, his first outing. Right. I mean, people have to calm down a little bit. But, of course, you know, just like Derek Jeter – is is losing range? <laughs> CC Sabathia uh, is losing miles per hour and his fast umpagas, as Ron Burgundy would say. Uh, he's losing those on his fastball, but it's way too early for that. You know, Hiroki Kuroda. I I think Hiroki Kuroda will be better this year. The first half of the season, I want to get your thoughts on this too. The first half of the season last year, the Yankees really had to use him. <laughs> you know, a lot. You know, CC wasn't CC. Uh, and when CC threw, and when the other members of the starting rotation threw, the bullpen was getting taxed. So Joe Girardi really had no other choice. He had to rest his bullpen. And if Corota was throwing well, I remember there was a, a complete game shutout against the Orioles, maybe third week of April, if I'm remembering correctly, um, where he was lights out. I mean, the Orioles couldn't do anything. I, one runner got to second base in that game. He was phenomenal. But that constant use think of it as you know 
how Joe Torre used to take abuse for overusing the bullpen and maybe ending some of his relievers' careers a little bit early. Uh, Joe Girardi, though, had no choice last year with Hiroki Kuroda. The only way the Yankees were in the position they were in in September was because of Hiroki Kuroda, even though he didn't win a game from the middle of August till the end of the season. Uh, he's the one who put them in the position to possibly make the playoffs. I think they're not going to have to use him as much and let him go into games as deep as much, number one, because the offense is better, number two, because I don't think you're going to need to do that. You're going to have a rested bullpen. You're going to have younger guys out there in the bullpen. I just think Joe Girardi has a better opportunity to use Kuroda a little bit better this year. Yeah, Kuroda's been significantly better in the first half of the past two years than he has in the second half. He's an older guy. It makes a ton of sense. You know, either way, Chris, this guy is the face of consistency, an ERA under four every season he's been in the big leagues. You can count on him for 10 to 15 wins and a sub four ERA. And that is so nice to have because he doesn't get hurt. He does wear down a little bit, but he's not a consistently hurt guy. He is just a solid rotation guy. You know what you're going to get with him. And that is just so nice to have in a rotation that is full of, I would say, optimistic question marks. Guys that we, you know, have a lot of upside, but we're not exactly sure what we're going to get out of them like a CC Sabathia. That's why all the question marks you hear all the time. Oh, my gosh. The question marks, the question marks, the question marks. But one of the answers the Yankees have this year, if they stay healthy, their lineup is exponentially better than it was last year. And we talked about this the last time we had the, the podcast that makes all the difference in the world. The pitchers last year, and if you were a pitcher in high school, uh, you know, if someone in your lineup was hurt and you knew, if you go out there first inning and you know you can't make a mistake, that's mentally taxing. Not, you know, that gets you tired more mentally, physically. You know, if I let a run or two across the plate, we're done. I- I'm going to get a loss. And what does that do? Like every fifth day you're out there like, we don't have a lineup. Well, I can't let two runs score. If I let two runs score, we're going to lose the game. That has to do something to you. They'll never say it. But if you put a little truth serum into them, they would they would say something. I think you know, a lot of people think, well, why wouldn't you just pitch uh, you know, at your best either way and just, you know, it shouldn't matter what the offensive output is. Well, to be honest with you, you're going to try and shut out the other team every time you're on the mound. The difference comes when you give up two runs and you give up. You're like, well, this offense is not going to bail me out, so this game's over. And then you end up giving up five runs. On a team with a good offense, you can give up two runs and feel like you're still in the game. Yeah, and you give it your 100% until your last pitch. You give up a two-run homer in the top of the first, you know, you look at a lineup that has Beltran and Teixeira and Jeter and Gardner and Ellsbury and McCann. You're like, ah, <laughs> we can get a couple runs back. I'm not scared. You know, whereas last year, and, and this is not, you know, talking down about the guys the Yankees had in the lineup last year. But that is in stark contrast to having guys like Lyle Overbay, who did a great job for the Yankees last year. Uh, Jason Nix, who was at shortstop. Uh, you know, that was a revolving door at shortstop last year. I mean, I remember it, the the left side of the infield for the Yankees. They were on the backups of the backups of the backups of the backups at one point during the season. That was early. That was like in May. And right there, you're like, my goodness, how are the Yankees staying afloat? Just smoke and mirrors. They were the great Burt Wonderstone last year, as I make the magic fingers as I say that. It was a great movie, by the way. Very underrated. Steve Carell's a funny dude. Anyway, getting back on topic. Uh, let's go back to the starting rotation and 
the next one in line, and that's Masahiro Tanaka, Doug. Uh, you know, and, and you hear everything about Nova, and he's a four. Nova's the four. People might think I'm crazy. Nova's a top-of-the-rotation guy. In my eyes, he is. I've seen him as that. I know he's had issues, but he's developed the, the changeup. He's developed a better slider. He's got the fastball. He's got that knee-buckling curveball now. Now he's got the tools. He's got to keep refining that talent. And, you know, you got to give a big tip of the cap to Gil Patterson last year. Came on board with the Yankees down in the minor leagues. When Nova went down there, he went down to Tampa. He worked with them, uh, and he made him – they were joking about it. He said, you have to be more like a lion. And he got Nova to laugh. He goes, no, you have to be aggressive. You have to attack these hitters. You can't, you can't nitpick and, and, and corner this and corner that. You have to go right at them. And when Nova came back, that's when that light went off. And I interviewed him after one of his starts after he came back filling in for the lovely and talented Meredith Morakovitz. And, and uh, Nova said, you know, Gil Patterson does get credit, but he says – you know, a lot of the – he didn't use these words, but I'm just kind of paraphrasing. The onus was on him, okay? He knew that he had to make the turn. He had to make the change. He had to go after these hitters. Patterson was the conduit, but Nova, it just – a light went off. And I'm jumping the bit here. I'm, I'm rushing to Nova, but you can't really say too much about Tanaka. We've seen him one time. You know, we've heard his teammates. Sabathia plays catch with him. He says the splitter's filthy. McCann has come out and publicly said the guy has great pitches. Cervelli says, I need another hand because he has so many pitches when I put signs down. I thought that was a great line. But we're not going to really be able to get a fair uh, assertion of how this guy is. See, I don't judge people on one, two, three, four starts. I want to see Tanaka in his first 10 starts. That's what I want to see. I'm not going to rush to judgments, jump to conclusions. Now, the writers out there, they have stories to write. They have papers to sell. They're going to look at every minute detail and aspect. And if he starts 4-0, great. But I am not going to go to the next level and say, oh, well, he's going to be great. He's going to win 20 games. He's going to go 24-0. Like he didn't. No, it's, it's just not the way it works. You know how this works, Doug. You, you've seen this before. Guys who get out to the fast start, sometimes they have a little bit of a stretch where they're, you know, they're mediocre. That's why you have to pace yourself. Take your time, Yankee fans. You know, it's a long season. I say this every year. I'm going to say it again. 162 games. It's almost double an NBA or an NHL season. And I can't do the math in my head how much of a jump it is with football, but whatever. But I just think those top three guys just need to be themselves. They do. That's all they need to do because this year you'll have a younger bullpen. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. No experience. You know, Mariano Rivera's gone. You got David Robertson as the closer. But you have young arms. You know, who knows if Campos maybe doesn't break and, and make the team after camp, but maybe he comes up. Maybe he's in the bullpen. Who knows? Maybe Benuelos gets a shot as a lefty specialist. Who knows? I just think the Yankees this year have more in their arsenal <laughs> than they did last year, and that's being Captain Obvious here, Doug. But they really need a Von Nova. He needs to grab the ball this year. He needs to take the bull by the horns, and he needs to be the guy who he was in the second half of the season. And if Nova does that, he's not going to be a four come the end of the season. When the playoffs roll around, listen, this is March. 
as we tape this, it's March 4th. It's my opinion. It doesn't mean it's fact. But I think Ivan Nova is going to be a large part, ginormous part of this Yankees rotation this year. Yeah, and going back to what you said about, um, you know, Tanaka, the thing is, you have to trust the fact that he's got good stuff. Because at this point, I don't think the Yankees would have him if he didn't have very good stuff. And I don't think that he would have been this hyped. And I don't think he would have been this successful in Japan if he didn't have good stuff. I, I from seeing his stuff and his first, you know, a brief start in Florida, you can tell that he's the real deal. Now, can he handle things like pitching in 25-degree weather? Can he handle things like Yankee Stadium, Fenway Park? You know, these are the things that are yet to be figured out. Can he throw in a small stadium when the weather's perfect? Yes, we know that. But, you know, this the, he's he still has a lot of tests, and not and all of them necessarily have to do with the actual pitches he throws. Well, he pitched in a WBC, too, so you got a little bit of a litmus test there with him. And I, I think... He just seems to me like he has the character and the makeup to be able to handle Yankee totally Stadium agree. and totally to be agree. able to, to be able to handle Fenway Park as well. I, I don't think the Yankees have to worry about that as much as they have to worry about is his stuff going to translate once the regular season starts. My opinion, I think it will. Like you said, you made a great point. You know, the Yankees invested a lot of money in this guy. They wouldn't have done that if their scouts didn't tell them to. Uh, if he did, if he wasn't so damn good in Japan, the guy was undefeated. I mean, he's got a something has to translate over here. And just to hear the glowing reviews from his catchers and some of his teammates, you'd have to your expectations have to be at a, at a high. And sometimes, as you know, Doug, as well as anybody in Yankee Land, that can sometimes be a negative. Being so positive could be a big-time negative once the season starts. Yeah, I um, just a quick um, shameless plug. We do player profiles on YesNetwork.com. We're doing every, a Yankee every day, seven days a week, and today's is CC Sabathia. And I did the math. If you think about the amount of innings that CC Sabathia has pitched, he's number three on the active list. He's 33 years old, but he's number three on the active list in innings pitched. If you think about it, like 15 pitches per, per inning. He's thrown 45,000 pitches wow. in his career. That's unbelievable. So when we're looking at this Yankee rotation, think about the fact that you don't have to look far when you're wondering why C.C. Sabathia's velocity is down. He's one of the biggest workhorses in baseball, and he's 33. So technically, you look at 40 years old as the retirement age in baseball. He's got seven years before he's 40. This guy is a workhorse, and and to have a guy in your rotation like CeCe, who's going to give you 200 innings no matter what, that's valuable, even if he's not the old CeCe. That's what people forget, Doug. That's what people forget all the time on Twitter when he's having a bad outing and they start tweeting their venom. This guy brings his lunch pail to work every day. Not just the day he throws, not just the day he starts. He brings his lunch pail every day. I want CC Sabathia to have the ball. I'm not saying Ivan Nova is going to supplant CC Sabathia as the number one pitcher. I just think Nova needs to be a one or two for the Yankees to be successful this year. He needs, you know, he needs to be that mat that the, the, the other starters could fall back on and say, you know what, go pick me up. I stunk, but go pick me up. And I think Nova could do that this year. But as far as CC goes. You know, all all the vitriol, all the venom that the fans have. You got some construction noises yeah. happening right now. It's the S Network, <laughs> you know. Knock down that wall, knock down that wall. A little Johnny Dangerously humor for you there. Uh, but CeCe, 
he I just can't say enough. He's kind of like Phil Hughes in the fact that both of those guys, especially last year when they were struggling, no matter how much they struggled on the mound, they were in front of their lockers every time, dressed and ready to talk and putting the onus on themselves. Regardless of how atrocious that offense was, and if they had any kind of inkling of an offense last year, they possibly could have turned some of those losses into wins, and they knew that. But they stood there in front of that locker and said, I need to be better. There's something to say about that. There is. Those, and I know a lot of people hate Hughes. That, to me, is one of the marks of being a professional, putting, putting the blame on yourself. And some people say, well, that's nice, but you, know, you still have to pitch better. True. True, but he could have been there ridiculing his teammates. Ridicule, well, we don't have a lineup. You know, I, I, what, I can't give up three runs? Neither one of them ever said that. They know they had to do a better job. And CC is one of the, pff, look, I'm a competitor. You're a competitor. I can't speak for how much you are, but I hate losing. Hate. I know that man hates losing. And I know when he takes a loss, whether it's in April or October, it hurts. Just as much. You could see it after the game. You could see that he's pissed off at himself. Sorry I used that word. But you could just see it. You talk to him and, you know, he'll shake his head. He looks you in the eye. Not everybody does that. Not everybody but not everybody does that. And it's just nice to see that someone cares that much about what they're doing out there. Switching from the rotation, Chris, um, obviously we get a good look at Derek Jeter because we work at the Yes Network. We're analyzing him all the time. Uh, last year I was at a few of his rehab stints after he was making one of his several comebacks from this injury. And you could tell when he was running to first base that he was still hurt. This year it looks a little different. He looks like he's moving Fluidly, what do you think? Well, I tend to agree with you, and like I said, all I've said this before, I'll say it again. These guys who get hurt and they rush to get back, guys like Kobe, guys like Derek Rose, guys like Derek, guys like Mark Teixeira last year, even though Teixeira hurt the same wrist uh, that he had to go out for for the rest of the season last year, Jeter had another injury to the same ankle, but these guys go out there. They're gamers. They want to be back in the game. They want to be helping their team. But sometimes, like Kobe's, in Kobe's case, in Derrick Rose's case, they overcompensate. You know, they have that injury on their mind. They know that ended their season. I don't care how much I – don't, I don't care how good of an athlete you are that's on the back of your mind all the time. And, and you're overcompensating. And I just think what Doug said hit the nail on the head – he looks like a different player. He looks like he's got the confidence to say, you know what, I'm going full tilt. Uh, and if something happens, something happens. But I think he feels uh, the fact that he could be Derek Jeter once again and not have to worry about injuring that ankle. It's just going to be so interesting, Chris, because I think after the announcement that he was going to retire, a lot of us thought, oh, boy, when we see him in spring training, he's going to you know, have a limp. He's going to be not a no. shade of his old no. self. He really it looks like said he was going to retire after 2014 when he felt healthy. So let's say he's got a great year. Derek Jeter is not one to have Joe Girardi come to his locker and say, uh, yeah, you're uh, you're sitting today. we got to give you a day of rest. <laughs> Derek Jeter is not one to say, sure, coach, sounds good. No, He's going to fight to be out there. Yeah, so it's just going to be interesting. And he should. I mean, the Yankees' defense takes a nosedive if he isn't in the lineup. I'm sorry. It's just a, it's a fact. Even if he's the D.H., 
You know, you still have to put somebody else at shortstop. Brendan Ryan's a good defensive shortstop. He can't hit worth a lick. Uh, Eduardo Nunez, if he fills in, if he makes the team, uh, you know, his fielding is suspect. <laughs> He's got a bat, but his fielding is suspect. So right there with Jeter, who's been running out there <laughs> since 1996 every day. He came up in 95. You know, you have pretty much a guaranteed 300 hitter and a gold glove shortstop. That's what people don't realize. The guy hit 270 once. <laughs> once. And people were getting on him for hitting 270. Thought I he mean, was done. They, people yeah, thought he was done. Other teams would, would sign for that in a heartbeat if their shortstop was hitting 270. And this guy gets chastised for it. I, I just – I don't get it. And that's why every chance I get if I'm at a game and there's a young kid next to me, it doesn't even have to be my kid. It just has to be a kid. And, and they're talking to their father or they're talking to their brother. I'll just step in and I'll say, hey, you see that guy at shortstop? That's a legend. Every time he runs out onto the field, you're watching a Babe Ruth. You're watching a Mickey Mantle. You're watching a Joe DiMaggio. You're watching a Yogi Berra. Derek Jeter is that guy. You know – I say it all the time. My uncles had Joe D. Some of them even Babe Ruth. They go back that far. My father, he had Mantle, even though he thought Mays was better. We can't get into that now. <laughs> but my dad gets into plenty of family arguments with that one. Uh, he did think Willie Mays was a better uh, player than uh, Mickey Mantle. But anyway, uh, and we have Derek Jeter. I-, I truly believe that. you know. And in 2020, when he's eligible for the Hall of Fame, my fanny will be in Cooperstown. I'm sorry. It's just – I just feel this connection with the guy. Do I, do I talk to him on a regular basis? No. <laughs> Have I interviewed him in the clubhouse? Yeah. We don't hang out or anything. Trust me, if I did, I'd be talking about it. <laughs> but we don't. But I just have that much of a mutual respect for him. He came into uh, the league the same year I started my television career, and it, it's been a joy and we've said this in the last podcast, but it's just been an ab- – you can't say it enough. It's been an absolute joy watching this guy not only perform on the field, but you know the charitable endeavors he takes on off the field too and everything he does off the field. Just a tremendous human being. His parents are great. His sister's great. You know, it's just every, every organization wishes they had someone like Derek Jeter, and some of them do, but everyone wishes they have a player like Derek Jeter on their team. Yeah, and uh, I think a lot of organizations, a lot of a lot of times we talk about the Yankees, you know, farm system and everything like that. Um, I made this comment on Twitter uh, just about Brett Gardner after he signed his extension, and I said, you know, with Derek Jeter leaving, Brett Gardner's in his thirties, yeah, low thirties, but he is a homegrown Yankee, and he's a guy that after this contract is it, it takes place next year, he will have been a Yankee for a decade. Yeah. And that's something that doesn't happen all that often. So when you have a guy that's a true Yankee, like Brett Garner has become, you lock him up because the Yankees have seen how valuable that is with Derek Jeter. Yeah, 2005, I remember seeing Brett down in Staten Island. I've told this story many times, but I'm going gonna, so gonna to say it again. <laughs> just because, just because I like hearing myself say it, because everybody said I didn't know what I was talking about. I saw this kid play. Andy Stankowitz was the uh, manager at the time. They won the Staten, they won the Penn League uh, title that year in 2005. I was in the dugout when they won it. Uh, and in between innings, it was a great experience because you could actually sit there and talk to the players as they came off the field. And Brett was one of those guys, you know, not not extensive talks, but just small talk about the game, what was going on, and everything. And I came back 
appear to yes. And I reported to everybody and I said, look, I'm not saying that this guy is going to be an all-star. If he doesn't hit worth a lick in the minors after Staten Island, he won't come up here. But I said, if he could get his average 250 and above, he'll be in the Bronx. And I told him that in the dugout. In 2008, I had to fill in for Kim Jones. The day before, Brett Gardner was called up to the Yankees. He saw me in the clubhouse. I walked up to him. I said, told you. And he just gave me a smile. You know, it wasn't too much of a, uh, uh, a, a back and forth, but there was that acknowledgement. And, I, I, you know, it just made me feel good that three years after I reported back here to Yes and everybody said, you're not a scout. You don't know what you're talking about. Why should we listen to you? The guy's here. And like you said, he's going to be here a decade for the Yankees. So that, that makes me feel a little good about, you know, my situation. And you know the story about how he uh, – We'll tap he, on the back. He walked on at uh, College of Charleston. Yeah, absolutely. Showed up um, and didn't make the cut. And mm-hmm. Well, I guess he got cut. And uh, he showed up the next day with an equi- with equipment that wasn't the team's, you know, with a uniform from like high school. He was he Willie Mays Hayes. He said, you got you to gotta give me a shot, <laughs> which is so cool. Yeah. I mean – and he's easy to root for. And there was a lot of outcry when he signed that contract. Why? Why is there outcry? You know, uh, uh, Ken Davidoff uh, put a, a stat chart in his column in the New York Post after Gardner was signed to that contract, and it was Ellsbury and Gardner's season last year. Their numbers are pretty much the same except for the steals. Ellsbury had over 50. Gardner had over 20. That was the only discrep- major discrepancy. They're basically the same player, <laughs> but Gardner – is a fraction of the cost of Ellsbury. And, you know, there, there's so many intangibles the guy does. I, his baseball IQ is high. If Ellsbury needs a blow in center field, guess what you have? You have Gardner as another center fielder. I know he's going to start in left, but he gives you that luxury. And Ellsbury's been hurt before, and so has Gardner. I can't say he hasn't. But to have two, two guys who could play center field the way those two could play center field, the defense they can give you in the outfield, that speaks volumes about you know what Joe Girardi has at his disposal with and this. Not going to be team. a lot of bloop singles for the opposing teams. No, no, not at all. And you know what it comes down to, Doug, the starters that we talked about, and you know the fifth starter, whoever it may be, whether it's Nuno, whether it's Phelps, whether it's Warren, and you know Phelps and Warren, they're interchangeable. Whoever wins the fifth. Uh, starter the other one could be in the bullpen as the long man you know but that still remains to be seen um still a lot to go here i know it'll go quick but there's still a lot for joe girardi to go through before the season opens in houston in that first series uh but it, it all comes down to those starters we talked about like i said being themselves just doing their job because this year it's going to be different if that lineup stays healthy and they produce the way they're capable of there's not going to be a lot of pressure on the pitchers to do more than they need to do. And I think that means the world in any situation on any team. If you take the pressure off the pitchers, you score some runs, and you're able to battle back late in the game, which I think they will be able to, to do with this lineup, the Yankees are in great shape. Now, speaking of great shape, how about the Brooklyn Nets, Doug? I mean, 10-21 and 21 on January 1st. And as we speak right now, they are back at 500 at 29 and 29. Now, look, the Lawrence Frank thing, people raised eyebrows back then. But I think Mark Jackson said it the best. He said, 
there's one voice in the locker room, and it's got to be the head coach, and that's got to be Jason Kidd. And Mark Jackson loves Lawrence Frank. But I, I think Kidd, you know, hindsight, I didn't think it was the right thing to do at that time. But now, obviously, I have to say I was wrong. Um, it's Kidd's voice. Uh, the players have bought in, especially defensively. I was at the Bulls game last night filling in for Sarah Kustak. They were unbelievable on the defensive side of the ball, active hands. They had 19 steals. The Bulls, just to give you a little bit of a reference point, the Bulls committed a franchise low three turnovers against the Knicks the previous night. Now look, it's Tom Thibodeau for you. It's the Knicks, okay? Three turnovers against the Nets, 25. One night, they turned the ball over just three times against the Knicks, 25 times against the Nets. The Nets had 19 steals. That was a season high. Active hands on the defense, switching. The defensive rotations were pristine. I mean, there were some times when the Bulls put a little scare into you. Second quarter, they made a little run. They cut it to six. But the Nets weathered it, built the lead back up. They're looking, and and look, this is without Kevin Garnett. Second game, he's missed with back spasms. That's going to hurt them. You know, when they have to match up with a team like the Bulls who who are not on the second of a back-to-back. Because with their bigs, I mean, this is why the Bulls took them to a seventh game last year. Different team, but still, you guys, you guys got, you got guys like Joakim Noah. You got guys like Carlos Boozer, Jimmy Butler. That's a formidable front line. You know, and then you put Dunleavy on the perimeter with Heinrich, who's done a great job in Derrick Rose's absence. You can't say enough about Tom Thibodeau. This team, even with the loss last night, they're the four seed in the East. The four. When when Rose went down and they traded Dang, people were saying, well, it's a lost season for the Bulls. <laughs> really? <laughs> a team that has home court in the playoffs? Now, look, I know Miami and Indiana are the class of the Eastern Conference, and I know the Nets are going to have their hands full when they make the playoffs. It's very important. And we were talking about this on the Salt Lake City trip. Very, extremely important where they finish. They cannot finish in the seven or eight hole because, look, I know they've beaten the Heat twice this year, but when Miami wants to and they want to turn it on, as LeBron James showed us last night, and I've said this to you before, if LeBron wanted to just play and just take the ball and score at will, he could do that. Who's going to – the Bobcats couldn't stop him. He scored 61 points. And the guy started eight for eight from downtown. I keep going on tangents, but – I, I want to stick with the, the Nets, and I want to get your thoughts. And, you know, we talked about this on the Yes Men when I filled in for Lou that time. And uh, it was way back in the beginning of the season when both the Knicks and the Nets were struggling. And you asked me, uh, who are you worried about more, the Nets or the Knicks? And we both said the Knicks. And we both were right. I, I just I, I can't figure out that team that plays at the Garden. I just can't. And I'm shocked. And this this just goes – it has to go to the way everything is run over there because Mike Woodson still being on that bench. Now, look, Woody was great last year, but what other coach survives this? Before we get back to the Nets, I mean, what? aren't you shocked that he's still coaching right now? They're, they're, last night they have a 14-point lead over the Pistons. They lose by double digits. That's, how do you do that? What's going on there? 
I mean, I was telling you about a specific time in that game last night where Mike Woodson called the timeout. Nick's team goes to the bench, draws up a play. They get up, they get back on the floor, they turn the ball over, and the Pistons score. Timeout again. It's it's unbelievable that the guy still has a job. I I did a reply all for YesNetwork.com and YouTube, um, and. I said this, I think, almost a month and a half ago, two months ago. The question is, should Mike Woodson be fired? And I said, good guy, good coach, but sometimes when you fire a guy, it can, it can get the, the team nice and motivated. I thought he should have been fired then, and he still has a job. He's, he's they have there. 40 losses. They're 21 uh, and 40. I don't, I don't get it. And, and to go back to the Nets, this though. Is the team, what, 54 wins last year? Yeah. And to go back to the Nets, uh, Chris, the you know the thing about the Nets is they have a Toronto Raptors team ahead of them in the Metropolitan Division. Division, and I think a lot of people know that the talent level, you know, has a higher ceiling on the Nets than the Toronto Raptors. Now I think they play each other next week. If I if I have that right, I think so. Yeah, that's a big matchup because the Raptors are not just a team you can walk all over. They play so hard. So. I think it's going to be interesting. They, you know, the Nets could very well win this division, but they're at 500 now. That's a start. Uh, now it's time to see where they go. And it was a great win last night against the Bulls, who, by the way, are the polar opposite of the Knicks team. <laughs> yeah. Um, when they play each other, it's just funny. It's it's like watching opposites. Uh, I, you know, I, I tweeted out. I was watching that game uh, at the gym, and I tweeted out. You know, the Knicks just need to be the team that screams "Uncle." Uh, I, I, how much more can you take, especially fans? I, I think fans who, who – I get that you watch the game at the beginning, but if you're sitting in front of that TV for the entire game, especially that Bulls game, you're just cruising. You're cruising for a bruising. I, 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 maybe you like pain. I, <laughs> I don't get it. You're a masochist. I, what if you're paying for tickets at the Garden? Ugh. You're paying like a grand for, for tickets at the at court side to watch them lose by well, 20? That's your problem. Yeah, yeah. I spend my money <laughs> elsewhere. That isn't me. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's just nice to see the Nets getting back to 500. They're playing better basketball. And uh, they have a couple of winnable games coming up to get over 500. They have the the Grizzlies tomorrow. They're 12 and 11 against the Western Conference this year, which is respectable considering how good the West is. Um, so they have the Grizzlies tomorrow, and then they have the Kings on Sunday. So two winnable games. That's going to be the interesting thing because the Nets. We say it all year long. Ian Eagle, Donnie Marshall, Jim Spinarkle, we've all talked about it on the air. It's no secret. They're Jekyll and Hyde. You never know which Nets team is going to show up. Now, the one that showed up last night against the Bulls, if they show up against the Grizzlies and Kings, you would think two more wins, and they're at 31-29 and 29 as they head in to a game against the Raptors. So, you know, it's just going to be able to – and the buzzword in that locker room and with Jason Kidd, consistency. We haven't seen it, and that goes to show that they're 500 right now. That that's pretty much telling you there's no consistency. It's either up or down. Now's the time where the Nets have to turn the corner and try to get the ship completely righted. But I think they're on the right track, and the wins without Kevin Garnett 
they should give them a heap of confidence. And I got to give a shout out before we get into our last topic here to Mason Plumley. He started for Garnett last night, and I got to tell you, Doug, I was extremely impressed with this kid. He has grown so much. He knows where he has to be on the floor. He only scored six points, but the screens he was setting, the help on defense, he's constantly barking on defense. He's just like KG. You could actually see. And before the game, I think it was uh, Marcus Thornton or or – or someone else at shoot-around. I forget who it was off the top of my head, but someone asked uh, about KG. What's the one thing that – it was probably was Thornton. What was the one thing about KG or Sean Livingston that you didn't know about him that you know now? And I think it was Livingston who said, you know, it's probably the way he mentors players. And I bring that up because Plumley, not saying he was Kevin Garnett, but he looked like a clone doing the intangibles, the screens, the rebounding, the back taps, the talking on defense. And, you know, he, he's, he's the one net with the leaping ability that can make a highlight reel. You know, he's the one guy that could complete the alley-oop and get the fans up and, and get that place going. And, you know, the fans in Brooklyn are great. When that team is right. It's loud in that place, and if, if they need to get home floor, they need to get home court. They need to either catch the Bulls or catch the Raptors and get the three or the four seed. And if they do that, Doug, I think they can make a little noise in the playoffs. I'm not saying they're going to win the championship. I'm not saying they're going to win the title. But if they could avoid the heat and the Pacers in that first round, you know, get a little confidence, maybe a first-round win. They have the veteran leadership on that team. Darren Williams is healthier. He's playing like the all-star point guard that he is now. Had a couple of great moves last night, even high-five fans as he ran before he shot foul shots. You know, the locker room's up. The guys are liking what they're doing. I just think the Nets uh, are positioning themselves very nicely as we head down the stretch here. All right, our last order of business, just kind of a – I don't know if I want to call it funny, but just <laughs> a weird observation that I saw in today's New York Post. It was in the uh, NFL notes section by the Post staff and Wire Reports, and um, right next to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers' new and ugly uniforms that are coming out, just awful in my estimation. Uh, they should have just made the entire helmet the flag. Uh, don't get it at all. Uh, I would rather see uh, the old school orange Leroy Selman, uh, God rest his soul, uniforms than these abominations that they're about to come out with. But that that's not the observation that I'm talking about. It's, you know, a couple weeks ago, Doug, the NFL came out, Roger Goodell's latest brainstorm. Uh, to flag an opposing or to flag players for use of the N-word, uh, a 15-yard penalty. Um, and Richard Sherman was reached uh, for comment on this, and you know why they went to him. <laughs> Someone's going to speak their mind. It's going to be Richard Sherman. And uh, this is a direct quote from Richard Sherman. It's an atrocious idea. Uh, it's almost racist to me. It's weird they're targeting one specific word. Why wouldn't all curse words be banned then? Okay, so I'm just – you tell me if I'm wrong. I'm reading through the lines here. So is Richard Sherman basically saying – is he fighting to keep the N-word alive on the field? I, I'm, I'm lost. 
I, I, I mean, the, the connotations of that were, it, it's ugly, it's disgusting, it should never be uttered. It has all the racist connotations of our, of our nation's just awful past. Um, and there's so many uh, examples of it that we can get into, but we'd be here for another hour a day. Um, but I, I just don't know why. Maybe I'm reading into it wrong. I, I just don't know why you would fight a 15-yard penalty. Now, look, I don't think it's the NFL's right to be policing speech on the field or First First Amendment rights. <laughs> so I tend to agree with Sherman a little bit. But at the same time, I hope that's what he's fighting for and not just to keep that word you know, as a normal, everyday word on the NFL football field. Yeah, the word that comes up to me, Chris, when I when I hear that quote is just confusion. I'm not sure what he means when he says it's racist that they ban the word. I'm just lost. Like, what is he saying is racist? Is he saying that the fact that they would ban that word that is a in itself a racist word <laughs> is race? I'm so confused. And, and you brought up a good point before we came on the air. I don't want to steal it from you, but I, I want to say it. You know, he's the one that had the problem with thug. Right. And he and he and he made the the connection, shook the hand. Thug was in the same he he says thug is now the new N-word. So <laughs> it just seems like he's fighting to keep it, you know, on the field and not a penalty, you know, and I listen, we we could interview him and he could set me straight, but to me, just reading between the lines a little bit, I, that's where the confusion sits. In. And these are usually, uh, to be fair to Richard Sherman, these are usually the quotes that come out, and then tomorrow or today he'll come out and say what I meant was, yeah, yeah. etc. <laughs> because th- there's just not enough. Not only is this quote so short, but it's got so much packed into right, it. Right, right. You know, and what are you supposed to think? And you're definitely right. It's one of those. You see what ha- happened was <laughs> I meant dot dot dot. And yeah. he'll go and run after a reporter to day to get that oh, set. Absolutely, you know, they won't come absolutely. after him because so, they've gotten what they want. So stay tuned on that. And, you know, you can't, like like I always say, and, and Doug agrees with me to the hilt, that, you know, in today's Twitter world, someone gets a headline or a quote and that's the entire story. And meanwhile, there was a 10-minute conversation that went back and forth and they use one line and they take it out of context. But just, I'm doing it now. I'm doing it now. I'm uh, you know, falling victim to what I hate. But at the same time, I just thought it was a little silly. So I thought I'd bring it up. I saw it in the paper. So there you go. And uh, any final thoughts there, Mr. Williams? No, I think I'm good. All right. So we covered a lot. Wow. 42 minutes goes fast when you're having fun, I guess. I uh, hope you stayed around for the entire time. I'm Chris Sheeran for Doug Williams. We want to thank you for listening to The Chris Sheeran Show. And also, don't forget to check out the Yes Men podcast with Lou DiPietro and Doug Williams as well. You could follow Doug. It's at Doug Williams on Twitter. At Doug Williams, yes. At Doug Williams, yes. And of course, I'm at Chris Sheeran, yes. Uh, we thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time here on hashtag CSS.